I have pictured that one day we'll stand around the throne and we'll sing that song. I'm going to be reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, if you would turn there. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I'm just going to read two verses this morning, um, verses 12 and 13. We'll talk about those and next week be prepared to head a little further into this chapter. So 1 Corinthians chapter 12, if you'll just follow along as I read, starting in verse 12, Paul writes this to the church at Corinth. He says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, uh, excuse me, all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Let me pray. Father, it's obvious, just a cursory reader of these verses, we see the number one show up over and over. One body, one baptism, one spirit. We can understand very quickly that you're driving away this point that there's only one. There's only one body. It's not splintered. It's not uh, divided. It's it's one. And we come into this one body through one baptism in the Spirit. And so I pray this morning as we study through and learn in more detail what this means, that you would help us to be equipped to be one body. One. Father, I need your help this morning. I pray for your Spirit within me to speak what you would have. Father, I love you. I pray in Jesus' name this morning. Amen. Well, after a few weeks off, we return to the book of 1 Corinthians, a letter written to a church plagued with pride from one end to the other. Uh, People in this church were bent on having the highest praise, the loftiest accolades, the the highest positions, the, the most out front and obvious giftings. It was a church filled with people just like you and me. For honest with ourselves, every one of us face sinful pride in our life. and That would include even preachers. Uh, If any minister is worth his salt, he will tell you uh, that when the Lord helps him uh, to preach a powerful sermon and God's people are, are stirred by it, it's almost impossible for him not to bask in the appreciation uh, of the sermon's power and and what the people have to tell him, even though he knows full well that it was God who gave him the sermon, it was God who empowered it. There was one great French preacher after a service in which he had preached one of his characteristically articulate and powerful sermons. He was approached by a woman who just lavished praise on him, how wonderful his sermon was. And recognizing the own uh, unique temptation in his heart to sort of swell up with pride, he responded to this lady by saying, Madam, the devil has already said that to me and much more eloquently than you have. Because he knew that his heart was prone to pride, just like yours and just like mine. Pride is an ugly thing. 
but it's so easy to fall into. Paul wrote this letter uh, to the Corinthian Christians because just like you and I, at least at times, uh, we sometimes find ourselves making a habit of looking down our noses at other people and sort of taking pride in, in our position. And in this particular church, uh, what Paul is addressing in chapters 12 through 14 is how they would take pride in their spiritual gifts. And they would look down their noses at people who didn't have the showy gifts. Uh, over in the one corner of this Corinthian church, you had the, the tongue speakers. And, and they were really proud of the fact that they could speak in languages that no one else knew. And then right next to them, you had the, the interpreters. And they were quite proud of the fact that they were the ones who could interpret what the tongue speakers were speaking and, and deliver it to the people. So they took pride in the fact uh, that they could interpret. Another pocket of people over here were the healers. And their uh, mantra was uh, the, that if you have your health, you have everything. And so they took great pride in the fact that, that they could heal people. And this church in Corinth was beginning to splinter because of folks thinking that their gift was the most important and that perhaps um, they could do it all and they didn't need any of these lesser gifts that were running around. So Paul, using the best metaphor that he could think of, begins to explain spiritual gifts in the church. And he comes up with this word picture. And the word picture that he uses is the, the picture of the body. And he says there's only one body and there's only one way to get into this body. Uh, th there's only one body and the way that you get into it is through the one baptism. And, and those are the two points that we're going to talk about this morning. The one body... Uh, explaining that and then how we enter that through the one baptism in the Spirit. And, and Paul is very careful to lay this out. Now we're going to tread on some controversial ground this morning. Nothing like a little controversy right at the beginning of the year, right? Uh, we're going we're gonna to tread on this. And so because of this, we're going to go through these verses uh, phrase by phrase, uh, sometimes even word by word here in a bit, just to help us to understand what Paul is saying and why Paul is saying it. Now, my goal is not to stir up controversy, uh, even though we're going to tread there, but it's really to help us build a fuller and, I hope, a more robust love and appreciation for the spiritual gifts that God has given to people in the church. And that whatever gift that you have that you look at other people in the church as valuable contributors to this one body. And you recognize that if you were to do it all alone, you would crash and burn. We need everybody else. And so my goal is that we will have a humble spirit that really pervades our church, uh, both today and through the, throughout this year. So that's the approach that I want to take as we head into this. So... Paul starts off with this word picture, this picture of a body. So let's look at it, the, the human body. Look at verse 12 again. He says, just as the body, and, and the body, the word he's using there is the human body, that is our flesh and our bones, okay? Just as the body is one and has many members, and that word members there, when Paul uses that, he's talking about 
the organs of our body. He's talking about our, our arms and our legs, our, our feet, our nose, our eyes, our internal organs, our external organs, everything about us. We have all kinds of members. You and I have one body. We, might, we may like this body, or we may think this body needs a lot of improvement, um, but we have one body. It's made up, though, of, of many members. I have arms. I have a stomach. I'll go home later today and eat lunch. I have feet that help me walk up on the stage. All of these members of my body work in tandem uh, to form one body. If I were to detach any member of my body, if I were to, to cut off a finger, that finger would wither away and die as well as the rest of the body would suffer because it had lost the use of that one member. I need every member of my body in order to function well. Can the body function with a missing finger? Yes, but it's more difficult. It has to compensate from other areas of the body to make up for that. Many members, um, but one body. When I bring all of those members together and they're functioning right, then I have one living, breathing body that carries out its functions. It's interesting to me that even within the human body, uh, those parts that are duplicated are even unique. Let me me give you some examples. Um, I have two eyes. They're duplicated, um, but the prescription for my contacts are different in my two eyes. One of them can see a little bit better than the other one. One of them, the astigmatism, is a little bit worse than the other. You and I have two hands, but some of us are right-handed and some of us are Uh, left-handed. They're duplicated, but I can do things with my right hand that I can't do with my left hand. Uh, because I'm right-handed. Some people are ambidextrous. They can uh, use both. Um, I have two ears. Um, But if you look closely, uh, one of my ears is set higher on my head than the other one. Now, I'm not going to tell you which one, uh, and you're probably, for the rest of the sermon, going to try to figure out which one it is. Um, One of them is higher than the other. If you ever watch when I lay my eyeglasses down, they're bent, because when they sit on my head, they sit lopsided. I have duplicated parts, but yet they're different. So even in in the body of Christ, uh, we can have duplicated uh, gifts, but they function differently. We can have two teachers that both have the gifting of teachers, but they may come at it from a totally different way. We have six people um, that form our leadership, our elders, and but each one of them is gifted. They, they all have uh, giftings of teaching and, and qualified to be elders, but they all function a little bit differently. Uh, we can have four cooks and one of them can specialize in desserts and the other one in the main course. The body of believers is just like our human body in that um, it has many members, but when they all come together, they form one cohesive unit. That is what Paul is talking about when he says at the end of verse 12, he says, so it is with Christ. Hundreds of members of the body, but yet there's only one body. When he says, so it is with Christ, what he's saying is, Christ has one body. That body is the church. 
made up of all kinds of unique parts, all kinds of individually functioning parts, but one body. And if we were to take any one member of the body of Christ and separate that member from the body, pull him out of the church, that member would very well wither away, decrease in his spiritual capacity, and the members that remain, the body that remains, would suffer because it was missing that one member. So Paul is saying here, his point is clear. We need every member of our human body in order to function well. And in that same way, we need every member of Christ's body in order to function well. There is no gifting in the church that is so important that it outweighs and, and negates the need for the other members of the body. Every member is necessary. Every gifting is useful. Every gifting has its purpose. And when they all come together, the body functions as one. Later in this chapter, in verses 24 and 25, Paul even takes those members of the body of Christ that we would say maybe have less glamorous jobs, and he elevates them. In verses 24, 25, he says, God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the one who lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care one for another. In other words, there are some gifts of the Spirit that are very out front, and, and folks who have those giftings, you see them often because they're functioning well and they're out front leading There's other people that have giftings that are in the background and they are just as important, they're just as vital, but you don't see them as often. All that stuff that happens back there that no one really notices until it's gone, until that person isn't functioning well. Paul says it's those members that God actually gives greater honor to. Why? So that there's no division in the body. It's one body. And so that's why at Providence we we seek to honor those who work hard behind the scenes, who don't always get the honor, who don't always get the accolades, and we try to remember to uh, show them uh, that we love them, that we care, and that they're important in our church. So whatever gifting you have, whatever unique talent God has given you to serve the body, uh, don't ever use that as a weapon to look down your nose at someone else or or to beat someone else down. It was God who gave you that gift. It was God who equipped you. It was God who placed you where he did in his body. And he did that so that you can be a blessing to the rest of the body. Okay? Now, when we talk about the body, we need to be clear about about this. Uh, There's one body... Paul says that. But it can be applied two different ways. When we talk about the body of Christ, or we talk about the church of Christ, we can talk about the church in two different ways. We can talk about the universal church, and we can talk about the local church. So let me describe those so that we know what we're talking about when we talk about the body. First, we can talk about the universal body, or the universal church. There is only 
one true church in the world comprised of all born-again believers no matter what local congregations they find themselves in. There are Africans in this body of Christ. There are Chinese. There are Americans. There are Europeans. Any born-again believer belongs to the universal body of Christ. In the same vein of that thinking, there are Mennonites in this body. There are Methodists in this body. There are Lutherans. There are Baptists. There are Presbyterians. There are non-denominationals in that body. Any person who has been born again, who has a saving faith, a true faith in Jesus Christ, is part of the universal church of God. Our team was in Guatemala. There are Guatemalan Christians in the universal body of Christ. It may come as a shock to some people, but there will not be a sign over heaven's gate that says, for providence Christians only. The gate will be wide open for any person who believes in Jesus Christ. There's probably few things in life um, that yank my chain quicker uh, than when we refuse to accept that God's church is much larger uh, than just a gathering in Montgomery uh, or a denomination in the United States or a set of bylaws uh, on the church. I can, in the church shelf, I can tell you I have grown tremendously for men and women who, don't, who I don't always agree with on every area of theology. There are folks that I have learned from that I have to agree to disagree on some points of theology. That doesn't mean I discount them. It doesn't mean that I ignore them. It means that I recognize that fundamentally, it's a faith in Jesus Christ that saves. And if he and I both believe and both put our faith in Jesus Christ, a true converting love of Christ, then we're both in the universal body of Christ. Now, I'm not preaching some ecumenical gospel here where we just all lock arms and nothing matters except that we follow Jesus. No, what I'm saying is this. We still come back to Scripture. We still study what's there. We still make sure that our doctrine is sound, but there are times when we recognize that a person is a believer in Christ, even though we may disagree with certain points of his theology. I love him just the same. I call him a brother or sister. Um, He's in the body of Christ, but we may differ. Some people will say, well, Sean, you preach the way you do because you're a Mennonite. Or... Worse, they'll say, you preach the way you do because you don't want to be a Mennonite. I can tell you this, that's hogwash. Uh, I I don't give a rip what name is on the church sign. What I'm after is truth. What does the Bible say? We go and we look at the word of God and we say, what does the Bible say? Because that's where we form our doctrine. Our beliefs are shaped by Scripture, not the other way around. Our beliefs 
are shaped by Scripture and not the other way around. So when Paul says there's one body, we first recognize that there's one universal church, there's one universal body of believers, and it's comprised of those who have been born again, who love Jesus Christ. Now, there's also the local body, a local congregation. And that's where you and I are at today. We're, we're gathered together as part of a local church. That is the assembly of those who gather together to worship together and to learn. The local church is meant to be a microcosm of the universal church. It's supposed to be a little picture of the larger universal body. The biggest difference is this. In the local body, there are both wheat and tares. There's both wheat and weeds. The universal body or the invisible body of Christ is made up of only believers. But when there's a local congregation, a local church, it will have unbelievers in it as well. That is true of every church. I'm not picking on any church. That is true of every church. Every church has true believers And every church has those who fake it, or worse, think that they're saved uh, when they're not. Every church, every local church has those who come week after week for the sake of image, for the sake of tradition. Uh, Maybe they're just woefully deceived and and think that they're saved, um, but they're not. Our Lord spoke of this in, in Matthew chapter 13. And he said, uh, it's the parable of the wheat and tares or the parable of the wheat and weeds. And he says, in the end, all the true believers will be gathered together and they will be taken into the, to the throne room of heaven. And all of the weeds will be gathered together and they will be taken and burned in the fires of hell. It's, it's the reality of the broken world we live in. That you and I cannot see the souls of men and women. We can't look and tell whether someone is saved or whether they're not. So it gives us pause and look at, to look at Peter's exhortation when Peter says, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. Make sure that you really believe. Make sure that your faith is genuine. Make sure that you're not one of the weeds that makes up the local body and you're not part of the universal body of Christ. So Paul's point, if we come back now into 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul's point is there is one body, one universal body, but it's made up of local bodies in which all of these members and all of these giftings function. The local church is meant to be a picture of the larger church. Now, how do you get into that body? How does one get into the universal body of Jesus Christ. Well, that comes in verse 13, and it says this. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. This verse has been the subject of much abuse particularly over the last 100 uh, to 150 years or so. Have you ever heard of the term uh, baptism of the Holy Spirit? 
If you've ever heard of that term, it's a phrase uh, that typically means this. Subsequent to one's conversion, uh, following one's conversion to Jesus Christ, there will be an additional experience in which that person receives the Holy Spirit. So in other other words, it's saying you can be a Christian uh, and but there, there's something missing. You can have the fullness of the Spirit at a later point of time, a later experience, and it's coined baptism of the Holy Spirit. Uh, some denominations will attach particular signs to that experience, like speaking in tongues, uh, to evidence the fact that one has received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It separates, in some people's minds, the haves from the have-nots. I have the Spirit, or I have not the Spirit. But look closely at what this verse says. Okay, look closely, because this is important for us to understand. It says, For in one Spirit we were all baptized. Or your translation might say, for by one, or I'm sorry, uh, yeah, by one spirit, uh, one was baptized. The, the better word there is the word in. The word in. In one spirit. And what it means is this. When you became a believer, you were baptized or you were identified with or you were placed into the realm of the Holy Spirit. When you became a believer, you were baptized. Now, in pastor's worlds, we say this isn't a wet verse, this is a dry verse. When this is talking about baptism here, this isn't talking about water baptism. This is talking about an identification with. If I am baptized into something... That means I am baptized, I am identified with that person with whom the baptism occurred, okay? Uh, It means this. When I was a sinner, and I recognized the fact that I had violated the holy law of God, I realized that I was hopeless. I needed a savior. I needed a redeemer. And there in front of me, stood the very Son of God, Jesus Christ. He walked on this earth. He lived a perfect life. He died in my place on the cross. Uh, He rose again three days later. And when I cried out to him, when I believed in him by faith, when I repented of my sins, when I confessed my wrongdoing, at least two things happened. Number one, I was saved from the wrath of God. I was taken out of the kingdom of darkness and I was placed into the kingdom of light. God's anger no longer resides on me because all of his anger for me was poured out on Jesus Jesus Christ at the cross. That was the first thing that happened. The second thing that happened when I believed and trusted in Jesus Christ is I was baptized in the Spirit. I was placed into the Spirit. I was immersed into the universal body of Jesus Christ. Okay? So my water baptism came later, 
But my water baptism was symbolizing um, the baptism that had already taken place in my life, that I was placed into the Spirit. So this baptism in the Spirit happens immediately upon conversion. And upon how many of the converted did this baptism occur? We'll look at the verse. For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. It is not the case that Bill over here was converted and he was baptized into the Spirit and Jane over here, she was converted, but she's still waiting uh, to be placed in the Spirit. No, no. This verse says, when we were converted, uh, we were all baptized into the Spirit. When we, by faith, believed in Jesus Christ, we were placed into the Spirit. There's no haves and have-nots. There's no possessing it and waiting for it. We all have the Spirit when we were born again. In fact, Romans 8 verse 9 says this, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit dwells in you. And listen to this, Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. In other words, you better have the Spirit because if you don't have the Spirit, you don't even belong to Jesus at all. The Bible never tells us how to get the baptism of the Spirit at all. It only ever tells us that we're already baptized in the Spirit. The concept that you hear so often, baptism of the Holy Spirit, never appears. Not a single time does it appear in Scripture. It is not a scriptural term. There is no such statement anywhere in the Bible as the baptism of the Holy Spirit. In fact, I would take it one step further and say there is no place in the Bible where you can even find that the Spirit does the baptizing. Not ever does this happen. That may be a surprise, um, but if you look carefully at the verses that are involved, the Spirit never does the baptizing. Let me show you an example of this. Hold your finger in 1 Corinthians 12 and flip back to Matthew chapter 3. I'll just show you one example. In Matthew chapter 3. And we'll see who is it that's doing the baptizing. Okay, because this is important. Matthew chapter 3, verse 11 John the Baptist is speaking here, by the way. That's why the words are in black if you have a red letter edition Bible. It's John the Baptist, he's speaking. And here's what John the Baptist says. He says, I baptize you, this is verse 11, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Okay, who's doing the baptizing? Jesus is doing the baptizing, right? It says, he who's coming after me, John the Baptist says, he's referring to Jesus Christ. He says, I'm not worthy to tie his sandals. It's this man who's coming that will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit never does the baptizing. It's Jesus doing the baptizing. Now, some people will point to this verse and they'll say, well, Sean, you totally missed it. 
You totally missed it. Look what that verse says. It says that he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire, Sean. What that's saying, folks will tell me, is that that means you're going to get baptized with the Spirit, yes, but at some point later, you're going to get the fire of the Spirit. That, that fire that came down in Acts chapter 2, you're going to get that later. That's what Jesus is going to baptize you with. The Spirit and the fire, you're going to have both. And I say, really? Keep reading. Keep reading. Look at verse 12. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. You know what chaff is? Chaff is that useless haul, that, that excess on wheat kernels, that when the farmers would harvest their wheat, they would take a winnowing fork, somewhat like a pitchfork, and they would, they would throw the wheat up into the, to the sky. And the wheat was heavy enough that it would fall back down to the floor, but the breeze would carry away that chaff, that useless material. And it would blow over and it would gather over into the side. And so they would gather the wheat together, and that was the good stuff. But the chaff they would gather and, and they would dispose of it. Okay? So now look back here at this verse. What John the Baptist is saying is this. He's saying Jesus is going to baptize but he's going to baptize with one of two things. He's either going to baptize with the Holy Spirit or he's going to baptize with fire and that fire is the unquenchable fire of his judgment. That's the fire that he's talking about. He's saying this, everybody in the world gets baptized. For the believers, for the wheat, they get baptized with the Holy Spirit. He's going to immerse them into the Holy Spirit. But for the chaff, the unbelievers, they're going to get baptized too, but they're going to get baptized with fire, and it's unquenchable fire. It's the fire of hell. It's the fire that will never, ever go out. It's the fire that you and I hope to never have to experience. Let's bring this all back around. Okay, let's, let's bring this all one picture in our mind. Who's doing the baptizing? Christ is doing the baptizing. Jesus Christ, not the Holy Spirit. We're getting baptized into the Holy Spirit, but he's not the one doing the baptizing. Every believer is baptized into Christ. Every unbeliever is baptized into unquenchable fire. So go back now to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And, and, and I think this will make sense to us now as we go back into verse 13. Paul now is talking to the local church. He's talking to people that he's presuming to be believers. He's addressed them as the saints of Christ. And he's trying to get across the point to them that they're in one body and that they've all received the Spirit. There's not the haves and the have-nots. There's not the ones that are more important than the others, okay? Look at verse 13 again. For in one Spirit, in, 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 in one Spirit, we were all baptized 
into one body, one universal body. Who? Jews and Greeks. It does not matter your ethnicity. Jews and Greeks, slaves and free. It does not matter your class in life, your social, economic standing in life, whether you're a free person or whether you're a slave. Every person who turns in faith to Jesus Christ is given equal access into the body. We were all baptized. We were all made to drink of one spirit. Does that help? I think what people get confused on whenever we're talking about this issue, people get confused on baptism in the Holy Spirit, which everyone, every believer receives, and fullness of the Holy Spirit. Now, those are two different things, and I would just say this. Every believer, when he believes, receives the complete power of the Holy Spirit in his life. Let me show you this. In Colossians 2, it says this. In him, you have been made complete. You have everything. In 2 Peter chapter 1, it says this. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. How? Through the knowledge of him who has called us to his glory and excellence. Okay? We've all received the the power of Jesus Christ in our lives. We've all been baptized. But how do we experience the fullness of that? One way, and that is we obey. We obey. And as we obey the Spirit, as we walk by the Spirit, we discover that we have power in the Spirit and that we have power to say no to sin. We have power to turn away from temptation. It's walking by the Spirit, it's obeying the Spirit that brings forth that fruit of the Spirit that causes the fullness of the Spirit to be in our lives. We already had it, but we just have to obey it in order to see that fullness. And some people get that confused. So, why would Paul write these verses to this Corinthian church? And by implication, why would he write them to us? Because you and I have no right to stand over another believer and in pride think that we have something that he or she does not. Or that we have a more important gifting than theirs. Friend, you look around the church today, okay? You're going to see all kinds of people. You're going to see short people. You're going to see tall people. You're going to see people who wear little clothes, and you're going to see people who wear big clothes. You're going to see people who stay in the background, and you're going to see people whose gifting sort of pushes them out front. But here's what I want you to know. Every believer has a place in the body. Every believer has a gift, a talent, that God has given them to benefit the body. We should acknowledge that. We should love that. We should appreciate that. So here's two points of application, then we'll close. Two points of application for believers from this passage. Number one, what is your contribution to the body? If you're a believer, then you have been given gifts by the Spirit 
to benefit the body. So the question is, where are you serving? Where are you taking the talents that God has given you and put them to use in the body of Christ? And maybe you sit and you say, well, I'm, n- I'm not. Okay, listen, friend. The body needs you. Without you, we limp. Without you, we, we have to compensate with others. Don't deprive the body of the gift that God has given you and don't detach yourself from the body. We love you. We need you. And we want you to be serving. So number one, what is your contribution to the body? If Paul is saying we're in one spirit and we're in one body, how are you functioning in that body? And number two, let's not judge ourselves by comparing our gifting with others. God gave you a gift. You didn't earn it. You didn't deserve it. He gave it to you. Maybe you have the best singing voice in this church. Don't think too highly of yourself. Sing for the glory of God. Maybe you have the biggest Sunday school class in this church. Don't think too highly of yourself. Just teach for the glory of God. Maybe you, ha- you are the best usher we have in this church. Or maybe you make the best potluck dessert in this whole church. Don't think too highly of yourselves. Just do those things because you want to serve the body. You want to benefit the body. Don't pat yourself on the back and, and gloat over how wonderful you are. Say, I'm just a servant. I'm just here because God wants me to use my gift to benefit this church. I don't think more highly of anyone else. I don't think less of anyone else. We are one body. And we have one singular function. And that is is that we make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the things that God has commanded us. That's our one focus. That's our one function. My prayer is that our church is united in its goal to humbly live out and to boldly proclaim that gospel that brings about that unity. I think it's then and only then will a dying world look to our living Savior and say, I want some of that. Tell me about that. Let me pray for us this morning. Father, I'm thankful that our church and every church that exists in 2013, every struggle, every challenge, every joy, every blessing that we face as a church was faced by the churches of the first century. We're no different. We just wear different styles. We just look a little different. Our hearts are the same. Our temptations are the same. And Father, it's very easy for us as individuals to think, well, if I wasn't there, that church would fall apart. Father, help us not to think that way. Help us to be humble. Help us to be servants. Help us to look at one another 
And like Paul said, realize that we are one body. We've all been baptized in one spirit. We serve the same risen Savior. And it's his name that we want to glorify. It's it's his name that we want to make great, not our own. Father, I pray that if there are any here today that have never given their lives to you, have never sold out for you, oh, they play the part and, and they look nice on Sundays, but they've never given 100% of all that they have to you, whether that's in school, whether that's at work, wherever that's at, I pray that you would change their heart this morning. I pray that they would experience being baptized into the universal church of God and that they wouldn't stand at risk of baptism of unquenchable fire, a dreadful outlook for those who reject Jesus Christ. And for those who have believed, who have loved you, who have sold out for you, Father, I pray that they will take the gifts that you've given them and they will flourish in those, that they will just blossom in their gift, that they will look for ways to serve, that they won't even wait until somebody taps them on the shoulder, but they will actively look for ways that they can benefit the body, not in a way that's prideful, not in a way that pushes them out front, but in a way that acknowledges that they're valuable. Father, we need them. I pray that we would take the gifts that we have we would take this church and together we would move forward in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Together we would stand in awe of the one who would give it all and then we would march forward as the army of Christ into a dying world to give them our living Savior. We love you. We proclaim your goodness from now and for all eternity. And all of God's people echoed the word. Amen.